Christ our Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Please join me now for a moment of prayer. God of resurrection, Son who took on the sacrifice of sin and defeated death, Spirit who replenishes us with new life, all of creation celebrates this day. As our world today sings triumphant cries over death you have conquered, help us, Lord, to keep this singing into tomorrow. May we keep singing after the dresses are put away and the candy is all eaten. May we continue about it, singing through our whole lives after. May you be our whole lives after. Let us not forget our joy in this liberation. May our celebration of this resurrection continue well beyond the end of this service, beyond our family's Easter banquets, luncheons, and dinners through all time. On this day of transformation and every day after, as we have been liberated from the sin that has bound us to death, the sin that has ostracized us from you and has ostracized others from love, as we find ourselves reunited with the one body of Christ and live into this new life given to us, may we keep singing. May we continue to radiate the love that has been redeemed us past this day of resurrection and be with us as we build your kingdom. May we live, breathe, and sing this salvation, joining in with all of heaven. Your resurrection defeats fear, muting it and extinguishing it, breaking its chains and freeing its hold on us, that we may be free to sing, free to love, free to act, and free to live out every purpose you have set before us. Your resurrection replaces human fear with divine power and action. In the garden, you took on our fear and experienced it fully as we do, as real as our fears can be. And still on the cross, you sacrificed your life, leaving heaven and comfort to conquer death in our place. It is this sacrifice and triumph that our task is sealed, that we may go forth in all the world and live and breathe your song of love alongside all in the full, very big body of Christ. Transform us this Easter. Transform your kingdom. Transform your people. May your Easter break barriers between us and you, Lord, rolling the heavy stone of the tomb away with blinding light and fill us with your spirit. May all we do on Easter and forever reflect the renewal of life we have received in you. Amen.
early on Sunday morning when it was still dark, Mary Madeline went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away from the entrance. He was running to Simon, Peter, and the other disciple who Jesus loved and told them they had taken the Lord from the tomb and they didn't know where they had put him. Then Peter and the other disciple went to the tomb. The two of them were running and the other disciple ran faster than Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and saw the linen cloths but did not go in. Behind him he saw Simon Peter and went straight to the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the cloth which had been all around Jesus in his head. It was not laying on the oh, with the linen cloth, but was full up by itself. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed. They still did not understand the scripture which said that he must rise from death. The disciples went back home. Mary stood crying outside the tomb. While she was crying, she bent over and looked in the tomb and saw two had been there, one at the head of, and the other at the feet. The women, why are you crying? They asked her. She answered, they have taken my Lord away and I do not know where they have put him. Then she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who is it that you are looking for? She thought he was a gardener, so she said to him, if you take him away, sir, please tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around and said in Hebrew, Rabbani. This means teacher. Do not hold on to me, Jesus told her, because I have not yet gone back to the Father. But go to the brothers and tell them that I am returning to him who is my father and male father, my God and male God. So Mary Madeline went and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and relate to them what he had told her. Karen Marley, thank you so much to our musicians and the ministers of music who have so capably brought us to this place of enthusiasm, of exaltation, of worship on Easter Sunday. It is so good to see you. Some new friends, some friends I haven't seen in a while. I encourage you at the conclusion of today's worship service to linger a bit, connect and reconnect. That is the meaning of a day like today.
reunions. So important. I've been thinking all week as we have made our way through the week, looking at both my weather app and the worship schedule, and realizing just how important contrasts are and how impactful contrasts really are. One of the things that I've learned as a pastor is that doing all of the same thing the same way every time over the long run very seldom has impact. It, we, we sort of become crystallized and set in our ways and in our patterns. So if our music's always fast, if you drop in something that's slow, it's right at that point of contrast. It sort of cracks us open a bit. If it's always super light and bright and shiny, when it gets dark, we pay a different sort of attention. If it's always loud, when you get soft, people lean in. And the reverse is true, too, that there's great power in the contrasts of our worship life, of our devotional life, and sometimes when light meets darkness, when volume meets silence, when anything comes into that sort of contrasting contact in our lives, it opens us up for something new or different, or even calls us to a different point of view. That's one of the reasons this Holy Week is so significant to me. Last Sunday, we waved palm branches and we opened our arms and our lives in this exultant way, welcoming Jesus as the people did to Jerusalem. By Thursday evening, it was in somber tones, in dim light, that we no longer tried to aggressively sing uh, hymn after hymn, but instead, in very plain chant, listened to the stiller, smaller voice in the diminishing light of the day. Yesterday, the unendurable silence of Holy Saturday, where there was nothing on the church calendar, and the weather probably prevented you from doing a whole lot. The weather did us a great favor this year, not only drawing us inward and to a quieter place of shelter on Friday and Saturday, but then also waking us up with this beautiful sunshine today. The birds are singing, the grass is green, the flowers are blooming. We have all of the external signals that tell us about the contrast between darkness and light, of death and life. And we gather today because it is Easter, and the resurrection is our leading reality. It leads us to the light. But I want us to remember today, as we reflect on what Karen and Marley read to us out of John's Gospel, that though Easter leads us to light, it begins while it is still dark. Though it leads us to the light, it begins while it is still dark. Easter begins when things are still low and dim and murky. That's how John begins the story of Jesus' resurrection. For Mary Magdalene, the day had begun. That day that would eventually become known as Easter, it had begun while it was still dark. In a very real way for us, too. How we get to Easter is going to influence the kind of Easter that we experience. And so John helps us see that today. All throughout John chapter 20, we really don't hear an overwhelming chorus or orchestra playing. If anything, his story of the resurrection is a little 
understated. It's not until the very end of all these verses that you find the main characters here having sort of a a jump for joy, jump up and down Easter experience. Most of the day is really head-scratching confusion. Even for some, it is heart-wrenching sorrow. When John tells the story of Jesus' resurrection, his language is rather spare, it's subdued, it's very matter-of-fact. And we should ask why. We should ask why he tells disciples this story in this way. John certainly recognizes the vital centrality of the resurrection. It's wonder. It's joy in the life of a disciple. But I think he's intentionally telling a less triumphant story here because he wants to lead us somewhere or perhaps more significantly, he wants to call us from somewhere to a point where we can see what God has done with greater clarity. And so we begin while it's still dark on that first Easter morning. Mary Magdalene finds enough light to make her way to the tomb. And it's not clear in John's gospel what she intends to do when she gets there. But I suspect she is going to do what we all do in such places. Whenever we make that pilgrimage to a place where one that we love is now buried. And there's no expiration date on that kind of grief or that kind of experience. I remember being in a meeting just west of High Point, and on my way back, I recall that a friend of mine, a dear friend, was buried there in High Point. It had been 10 years since I was part of that funeral procession that laid him to rest there. I could not honestly remember if I could find my way to the cemetery. I don't make my way to High Point all that often. But as I was driving back, I got off the highway, and I kind of wandered around High Point, and then I recognized a turn, made another turn. I found myself at the cemetery. I went to that grave. And no one had been there for a while. It was kind of grown over around the edges, and I cleared it off, and I sat there for a long time. Thought to myself, eventually went back to my car, got a pencil and a scrap of paper, and I wrote a letter. What do I want this friend to know about my life now that's changed in the last 10 years? There's no expiration date on our memory. Mary is making that pilgrimage of grief that is simultaneously healing and so, so hard. Maybe you can identify with those emotions as she makes her way to the tomb. And then maybe you can identify with what happens next. Imagine going to that place that is sacred to you because of who resides there, only to find that the grave has been dug up, that there are mounds of of freshly turned soil all around the grave, and that thing is empty. You would, of course, freak out. You would. I would. Something foul, something wrong has taken place, and Mary doesn't take a lot of time to investigate any further. Instead, She knows what she needs to know. It's obvious to her what's happening. She runs for help. There's a lot of running in this story, but it's mostly frightened and confused running. Here, while it's still dark in the morning, there's very little hopping or skipping with glee. And so Peter and the other disciple, the disciple that Jesus loved, who we presume is John, they run back to verify Mary's terrible news. And they investigate the matter a little more thoroughly than Mary did. 
only to confirm her testimony, his body is not there. Not only has the stone been removed, the tomb is empty except for the burial wrappings. But that was the next really odd thing. The wrappings are still there and they're neatly folded up. So the corpse wasn't there. And so immediately they think about something that was a little more common in those days. There's been a robber to this grave, but have you ever heard of a neat and tidy burglar? Come home some evening and you find that your house has been burgled. You would expect to find drawers pulled out, things pulled over, everything left akimbo because people are trying to get in and get out before they get caught. Maybe with your your electronic equipment, maybe with your silver, maybe they found that little stash of money that you keep, whatever it may be. I am quite certain they would not go back and make the bed. And they would not put the drawers back into place. Verse 8 tells us that John observed all this that he sees in front of him and he believes. But it's uncertain what it is he believes at this moment that Jesus has been raised from the dead according to the scriptures by the miraculous power of God that doesn't seem to be available to him yet. John tells us in verse 9 that John and Peter do not understand that this is a possibility yet. Much less believe it. Seems maybe a little more likely that John believes Mary's report. That there's no body there. Maybe also he had come to believe that there was something really strange happening. This was no grave robbery. So whatever kind of tentative conclusions they may have received at this point there at the tomb, these two men draw back in that moment. And they're reported in verse 10 to go back home. Not one emotion is described. We're not told whether they're happy. We're not told whether they're sad or confused. Whether they're elated, whether they're oddly inquisitive or uncurious nothing they go home john doesn't even record that they said goodbye to mary they just silently walk off and they leave this hapless woman to weep by herself in that garden early on the first day of the week it was still dark and mary wept and i think no matter how far the sun had sort of made its way over the horizon. At this point in the story, there is a powerful metaphor now at work, a sense in which that darkness persists. And the very first emotion that we hear John describe is one of sorrow. Mary is crying her eyes out. And this is where Easter begins. In the darkness. In our lament in our confusion, in the shadow of death. It's not where the story ends, as we'll see, but it is where it begins. And I think it's really important for us to remember. And I want to pause long enough to remember that John chapter 20 is consistent with the other resurrection stories of the Gospels in a powerful way. Because God clearly did something to and with Jesus' dead body. Well, what God did 
was a wholesale transformation of that body. God did not resuscitate Jesus' body. Our Lord was raised into a new mode, a new way of resurrection life. And at least one effect that the Gospels describe in the lives of his disciples is that Jesus' physical form was not so recognizable. There was something profoundly different about the risen Jesus. He had to keep showing his scars just to prove that there really was a continuity between the Jesus they saw suffer and die and the one who stood before them on Easter. Even at the very end of Matthew's Gospel, one of the last words that we read there is that although standing in the midst of his disciples on a mountain, Jesus looks different enough that some doubt. Some doubt that it's really him. And so when Mary encounters this stranger in the garden, who we know is Jesus, she looks right at him and first mistakes him for someone else. And it's only when Jesus speaks her name in that way that she could recognize who said it, that she knows who's standing there. And the rest of the story then flows from that encounter where Mary hears her name called, she responds, my teacher, my rabbi. Mary becomes the first ordained preacher in all of history. I was ordained in Mother's Day of 1999, much to my mother's delight. <laughs> but on Mother's Day 1999 at the Fredericksburg Baptist Church, the families that raised me, my family of faith, examined me affirmed my gifts, they laid hands on me, they prayed for me, and as the body of Christ, as, as a representative of Christ in my life, they commissioned me to go out and declare good news in the world. I was ordained to bear much fruit. Mary is ordained by Jesus. He authorizes her to go and to to declare good news to the disciples. And she faithfully bears that word, but you have the feeling that the disciples are a little uneasy. They're not sure whether to take this seriously. Thomas, as we know very famously, keeps doubting for quite a while over the days to come. But Mary's sadness has now lifted. And no one could say anything to her to make her question who she has met and who has sent her from that garden that morning. But still... Even at this point, there's no light, there's no razzle-dazzle, there's no earthquake, there's no wind, there's no fire, there's no orchestra. Though I'm so glad we have one. I'm so glad. But Easter doesn't burst onto the scene in the way John tells the story as much as it creeps onto the scene, emerging from the darkness, emerging from all that confusion, from the death, from the sadness, all that set the stage for this chapter's tone. And that is why sharing this story is good news for us. That's the good news of John chapter 20. Easter still creeps up on us in the darkness. Easter comes to those who, like Mary, find themselves crying their eyes out. Sometimes for days. Sometimes for an endless number of days. I'm privileged to be a part 
of an ongoing text prayer thread in this congregation. There's a circle of praying persons who share the needs and requests that they become aware of, needs of their own lives, but even more, the needs of this congregation and those who are in further concentric circles out from this congregation. They pray vigorously. They affirm the faith. But each and every time I scroll down that list, I realize just how long it is. And I look out here at your faces and I recognize that just about all of you, even today, are carrying a very heavy burden. You're fighting a battle. And that's the reality of our lives. And today we proclaim that the triumph of God's life is real because Jesus lives. That finally and fully, life and not death, are going to have the last word over our lives. I ran into a quote that I still haven't been able to source. I overheard it on a podcast, and it came to me like manna in heaven, from heaven. And it simply goes like this. It will be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not the end. And in many ways, that is the story of resurrection for us. Yesterday, down in Greenville, I had the privilege of baptizing a man I've known for years and years. He's been incarcerated since 1982. How many of you were born after 1982? I'll do the math for you. It's 41 years of incarceration. It's been a hard road for him as he made his way through his own rehabilitation, it also required a spiritual transformation that he, through the patient love and devotion of his sister and that praying circle of folks here at Yates and so many more have continued to support and sustain him until the point where he said, I want to be baptized and I want to commit myself to this new way. And that's really difficult to do in the prison system. He and I have been talking about it for years. By a miracle of God, he was paroled. And he's now in residence in Greenville, where he can't leave for five years. And as I stood in the water with him, I realized just how long it took to arrive at that point of release. Oh, and there was joy. There was joy when we entered the waters and emerged from the waters, displaying that transformed life. But do not deceive yourselves. Our lives are hard. And sometimes it takes a long, long time for the gospel to creep into all those places that are dark. But we cannot forget that this good news emerges from the shadows of that real world that we inhabit, where death and darkness and sadness are in many ways the context of our Easter. Death precedes Easter. Not only in the sense that Jesus had to die before he was resurrected. But we remember that Easter's light in part shines its brightest precisely because it is shining into the shadow land of our lives. It is in the contrast where the light pierces the darkness and cannot be overcome that it finally becomes real to us. And so John chapter 20 gives us an Easter 
an Easter that can go back home with you. After we leave here this morning, gives us an Easter that all the joy and proclamation that is required is, is not the trumpets, though they're great, and it's not the glittery banners or the extravagant Easter egg hunts. All that's required for Easter to thrive is for us to carry it with us to the places where our lives are the darkest. Because I doubt many of you wake up every morning to the hallelujah chorus sort of resounding in your heads. And I doubt you ride that, that, the crest of that wave of joy every time you make your way out to work. I doubt your lives are that exultant. If it is, uh, great. I'm speaking to the rest of you. I know most mornings I wake up while it's still dark. And I'm sometimes not convinced that I'm going to outrun the shadows of the day no matter how hard and fast I run. But the good news that we can live by and the good news that we can live with is that in the shadows of my life and in the shadows of your life, a truly risen Savior is lurking, is creeping into your life, and is bursting with new life. And in that darkness, it doesn't need to lift before the truth of Easter shows up in your life because it's here and it's now. We worship today because Jesus is here, now. Jesus knows your name. Jesus is calling your name. No matter how deep your darkness may seem just right now, listen for that voice. Listen for it. It's calling you. Listen for that voice. And start living Start living Jesus' new life now, even while it's still dark. Amen.